Sue Washer's life is dedicated to biopharma. She's working toward 40 years in the space with roots at Abbott and Eli Lilly and more than a dozen years in service to bio associations and organizations. For the past 20 years, she's been at the helm of the clinical stage gene therapy company, AGTC. On today's episode of the Business of Biotech, we're sitting down with Sue to talk through her approach to managing AGTC through what's undoubtedly been one of the weirdest and most challenging times she's seen. Sue Washer, welcome to the show. Well, hi, Matt. It's great to be with you here today. Well, we're so happy to have you. Thanks for joining us. Um, so I want to, before we get into the, the topic at hand, I want to get to know you a, a little bit better, uh, kind of learn what makes you tick. When I look back at your career, uh, you know, you began in technical product development at Abbott uh, before transitioning into pharmaceutical sales uh, and then on to management. So curious, what, what prompted that switch from um, the lab at, at Abbott to the front office? Well, certainly, I really enjoyed working in the lab. I've always been kind of a science geek, you know, really uh, enjoyed the discovery process and the experimental process. But in my time at Abbott, what I found is that there was sometimes on the greater teams um, moving products forward or improvements in products forward, there was sometimes a disconnect with how scientists thought about things and talked about things and how the marketing or even regulatory or finance people talked about products and opportunities. And so I went back and got my MBA as a way to try to bridge that gap. Uh, And then, as you say, went into sales to just show that I could use that business experience head on. And I have to say, throughout my career, while I didn't stay in sales and marketing, I really use that training each and every day to learn how to describe things really well to people. But after I did that, I wanted an opportunity to put those two things back together, you know, both the science side and the business side. And I found that opportunity at AGTC, which was a very, very early stage company. As I joined it, I was employee number two. Uh, And so it was really an opportunity to get grounded in the science, understand the science of this new mode of operations, gene therapy, and marry that with my business experience to be able to grow a company. Yeah, no, it's a, that's that's an, another interesting uh, thing about your background that I wanted to address, and that's the transition um, from from big pharma to uh, relative entrepreneurship. I mean, employee number two, you know, CEO at a at a very very small company compared to the the big companies you worked for uh, before. What what was sort of the motivation for that entrepreneurial move? You could have comfortably pursued a career for a long long time in big pharma. Well, I think the thing about Big Pharma is that I'm really glad I spent my years there. You learn a lot about how organizations work and what the different functions within an organization are, but you also learn that you're one of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, uh, and you get exposed to kind of a silo many times of mm-hmm. operations. And I saw that at a small company, you'd have a better chance of making a big impact on your own and also get exposure and an ability to operate in all different kinds of functions, which I found very intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is, uh, this is, we, we had a conversation, If you, I don't remember what episode number it was, but we talked with uh, Ivor McLeod from uh, Athersis, who's a finance guy. And we, we went long on, on just that exact topic, that uh, disconnect between finance, you know, the business side of the business and the science side of the business. And similarly uh, to you, Ivor had uh, some science chops prior to his uh, finance chops that 
allowed him to kind of bridge that that gap. It's a unique skill set to have, and I think it's one that's probably proven quite beneficial in your leadership at AGTC. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important that I understand the the depths of the technical side and can really speak to my technical team and understand their challenges and what they're going through. But the, through my business experience and especially the, the sales and marketing experience, I've learned how to translate that into conversations with investors, with bankers, with partners, where they can understand what's going on. And I think it's that language translation. Uh, that I think becomes very important to get people on the same page, the same level of understanding, and the same understanding of what the end goal is. Yeah. Another uh, interesting thing about your CV, if you will, your, your, uh, your, your professional experience um, is your, I guess what I would call extracurricular, you know, in, in quotes, uh, activity um, and leadership uh, with directorship and, and chair positions over the years with organizations like BIO. Um, organizations like the Association for Regenerative Medicine. Uh, You sit on the SEC Small Business Advisory Council. Tell us about uh, what motivates you to engage those outside, uh, within the industry, but obviously outside of AGTC interests and and what benefit there is that you kind of bring back to the company. So I I think that there's a... uh multiple benefits um, to being a leader outside of your own individual organization, both to you, to your company, and to those organizations. And I would say one of the first things is that to you personally, as a leader of an organization, you know, it's a tried and true kind of overused sentiment that being a CEO can be lonely because you don't have peers to bounce ideas off of. You can't always, you know, really be uh, fulsome in your discussion. With, with team members and, you know, the board serves a purpose, but I think that in engaging in these outside organizations, trade associations, not-for-profits, you get a good opportunity to interact with your peers. And there's many things throughout biopharmaceutical development that are similar across different companies, irregardless of the technology or the specific product. There's a lot of similar things that, that companies go through in developing products and having the ability to bounce ideas off of peers, I think can be very important. Also by your leadership in those organizations, you're learning what's happening in your industry kind of real time. What are the important things? What do all the other companies in the space think is important? What do governmental agencies think is important? What are they concerned about? And so these um, are great forums for you to learn a lot, not just for you personally and your leadership, but what's happening in the industry and what's coming down the road in the industry industry that might affect your company. And so I think that's also uh, quite valuable. And I think another part of it for me is just the idea of giving back and um, being able to recognize and help others in the industry as you might have been helped early on. You know, there's uh, companies that are all stages of development that are members of these organizations. And if I can help a CEO or a company or a leader of a, of a very early stage venture backed company kind of solve some issues and help them move forward, like I was helped move forward in the beginning, I think that that's really important too. So I would point to those three things. Yeah, very cool. And I'm sure that a, a lot of this, uh, th- that experience, those relationships um, from the from those associations uh, have have kind of helped or informed you as uh, to our, our topic at hand, as you've maneuvered your company through these very strange uh, and challenging 
times to use a... <laughs> well, I'll just give you an example of that. A group of us on the bio board that are all at emerging stage companies, uh, when the pandemic first hit, we started having weekly meetings together. And not all of us attended every week, but there was this opportunity once a week to get together and say, so how are you doing? And how are you addressing this? And what's going on at the FDA? And, and how is your state approaching this? And when are you going to open up the office again? And I think that that is one of the a big value of belonging to an association like that is the opportunity to tap into some collective wisdom. None of us have gone through this before. So all of us uh, in leadership positions at companies are experiencing this for the first time. And to have the touch point once a week of bouncing ideas off each other, I think was invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, to your point, no one's, no one had seen this before you, uh, you guys have done some pretty uh, creative and, and helpful things along the way that we'll, we'll get into, but before we get into, uh, you know, some specifics around how AGTC has handled the challenges um, I want to, I want to kind of frame up and get your perspective on like um, at, at what point, well, first, I mean, you've been, you've been doing this for, you've been, you've been there since, you know, darn near, 2000 down down darn near Y2K. Have you seen anything uh, as as challenging or disruptive in your leadership at AGTC as as this? So the only thing that I can point to is just when the company was first starting, there'd been a major safety event in the gene therapy space, and it put a real damper on the entire field. Um, and it was very challenging to raise money. It was very challenging to think about how to move a technology forward when there had been this very well-publicized, kind of overemphasized safety event in the field. And that's the closest thing I can, I can think of. But again, it was just in the gene therapy space where this pandemic is really hitting everyone, every aspect, not just our industry, but every industry. So really nothing like this that yeah. I, I can think of before. At, at what point, uh, you know, take yourself back to, uh, you know, winter, early, early spring. At what point did you kind of look at this and go, I'm going to need to, uh, you know, I'm going to need to rally the troops. I'm going to need to muster my, my, uh, you know, leadership resources and, and, and really address this thing. It's not a blip on the radar. This is going to be disruptive to our business. Yeah, it was, it was the first week of March. Um, and I think that just the numbers that were coming out of the of the Northeast, the numbers and the concern that was happening globally, it, it became very evident that this was not just something that we were going to wait out like a, somewhat like a normal flu season. And it was something we were really going to seriously have to address. And, you know, I had we had just had a board meeting and I had traveled back to uh, my home base, which is in Florida. And really, it just became obvious that this was something that we just needed to hunker down and figure out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, be- before we get off the Florida thing, everything everything cool down there? You guys uh, make it through the the weather? Absolutely. We the the so far, knock on wood, uh, we have not had a hurricane headed for Florida. They've been hitting, unfortunately, Texas, Louisiana, and Alabama. Yeah. Good. Um, what uh, what did you anticipate in the early days? You said, you know, first week of March, you know, you realize this is going to be something that needs to be addressed in a serious way. What did you anticipate uh, would, would be disruptive or disrupted the most? 
So what we were the most concerned about was our ongoing clinical trials. So Mm -hmm. while we had announced in in February that we had finished uh, enrollment in our ongoing trials, once patients are enrolled, they still need to be followed. Uh, You know, job one is assuring that patients are safe and that nothing untoward is happening. And so those, you know, to monitor safety generally require visits. And so we were very concerned right off the bat about the safety of the patients, being able to collect the safety information, monitor their health, and then also continue to collect the signs of biological activity, which is what we all conduct uh, trials for. So that was a major concern, I have to say paired right with that was concern for our employees. And how are they going to be safe? How are they going to be able to be productive? Their ability to keep themselves and their families safe was also paramount to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. What did, uh, and, and you know, obviously the, the situation was fluid. So you have these initial concerns like, wow, we're going to, there's going to be restricted travel restrictions around exposure. Um, you, you you know that, so you start probably employing some sort of a, a plan, like how are we going to get around? How are we going to make sure make sure that our you know our, our trial participants are 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 safe? How are we going to collect data? But then the the situation is dynamic, like it, it changes, it ebbs, it flows. At least here, here in Pennsylvania, where we are, it's 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 quite dynamic um, in terms of what what you can and can't do from 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 one day or week to the next. Um, so so tell us about how you how you initially planned, you know, what, what the initial plans were on each of those. Let's start with, uh, let's, let's start with uh, patient visits and patient safety, what the initial plan was, how that may have uh, kind of morphed as, as the pandemic has played out. So our initial plan was to, if the situation in a specific location was uh acceptable, very low caseloads, if the clinical trial site was open, if travel was allowed, that the patients would go to their site and get their checkups and get their visits and be monitored as they would normally. The second thing that we thought about was, is there a local physician, local to the doctor, local to the patient that might still be open and be able to talk to that, to conduct that visit for the patient? A third option initially was just to conduct phone calls and just, you know, walk through with the patient how they're feeling and any symptoms that might be relevant. Uh, So those were the first three things. And then we quickly uh, determined that that we were still going to potentially miss some patients and miss some visits. Uh, So our clinical operations team really worked tirelessly through end of March and April to institute a mobile testing center. And we worked with a third-party provider such that we bought the equipment, installed it on their mobile van, trained their technicians on all of the tests. And this van now has seen 20 over 25 patients, uh, upwards of 30 at this point, where it travels to the patient. So the patient is completely safe in their own home. We provide all of the PPE on both sides of the equation. And this has really been invaluable. The patients have 
so appreciated it as an option for them. Um, providers have appreciated it, and our clinical trial sites are also very appreciative because it's taken some of the burden off of them. So that's kind of how we walked through that. We're maintaining that mobile vision option even as some areas open up because individual patients have different feelings about whether they would like to travel or not. Yeah, that's very cool. So uh, how many how many patients have taken advantage of the mobile option? Almost 30 at this point. Yeah, and and that what what is that? That's uh, a said, you know, we're we work in the orphan drug space, so that's I know that number seems small, uh-huh. but it's a pretty it's a pretty big uh percentage of the patients that are that are in our trials. It's it's over a third of the patients that are in the trials. Yeah, no, that's definitely, it's certainly significant. What uh, what sort of geographical area does that cover? It's all across the country. Uh, the, the van has uh, I've made two trips so far and is currently on its third trip. And they basically do kind of a, they calculate the route based on the patients that want to be seen at home um, and uh, are about two weeks on the road each trip. Wow, that's really cool. Is it, is it the, the, the same the same crew kind of road tripping or do you swap out uh, staff? So we work with a third party vendor and they hire the staffing. So I can't address that specifically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Super unique um, solution though. Are there other, uh, other, other companies you're aware of that are kind of doing this, taking the same tack? So we haven't heard of anyone else. You know, it's it's not straightforward to implement because you have to put, you know, you do have to treat this as an amendment to your your protocol. It has to go through all the regulatory reviews. Um, and you do have to be very careful about the states that have quarantine requirements. So in those states, we can't be going in and out uh, of those states. So it's a logistical, you know, uh, challenge, uh, but our group has been able to address it, and we're we're quite proud of the commitment that it shows to our patients and our clinical trial sites. The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at CytivaLifeSciences.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A LifeSciences.com backslash Emerging Biotech. What about data collection? Uh, you mentioned that was the the, the second uh, big big challenge that or disruption that you anticipated. Um, so what's been the what's been the approach there? So that is that is what we're using the Mobile Vision Center for, not just safety analysis and health mm-hmm. analysis, but also actual biological activity data collection. Yeah. Do you have any insight into into the I guess the the tools uh, or or uh, I guess, approach that that team is using to, to collect that data and maintain its its accuracy? So it is the same equipment that we're using at the clinical trial sites that we purchased for this specific purpose. They were trained and qualified on that equipment, just like technicians at the clinical trial site would be. And the equipment is calibrated again, just like it would be at the clinical trial site. So as much as possible, we're adhering to the exact same practices as we would at a clinical trial site. 
Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's no delay in the timeliness of, of the data? So one of the advantages we have of working in AAV gene therapy like we do, AAV gene therapy is a very long-acting product, and it could be that you could treat a patient, and it would be years and years of efficacy. So if we're off on a visit by a week or two or even a month, um, yes, we have to note that the data was collected either late or a little bit early, but it's still very valuable to us because of the long-term nature of the treatment. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, good. And then uh, the, the third dis disruption or concern was around, uh, that you referenced just now, was around employees. Um, so what, 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 was the, uh, what was the, I guess, the, the mindset going into that? How are we going to handle uh, employee safety, employee, you know, their, their comfort level being away from or, or in the office? What was the approach? So in the first uh, several weeks, we really went very conservative. And we just said, everyone's going to be work from home. We were very lucky in that we had already transitioned to kind of a in the cloud environment in that our server was already in the cloud. We were, we have multiple locations that our uh, employees work at. So we had already implemented Zoom. We'd been using Zoom for, for almost a year uh, when this occurred. And so within, from the time of making the decision, kind of in the middle of the week to the following Monday, everyone was at home with a computer on Zoom, in the, on the net, working from home. And we just said, everybody works from home. And, and then we'll evaluate this on a week by week basis. After about a month, the one exception uh, was that we did have certain lab employees go in to make sure equipment was still running, freezers were operational, cells and biological materials were as they should be. And then about a month later, what we did is we did a complete deep cleaning of our, our, both our lab locations um, and an implementation of, diff of procedures such that the lab people could go back to work. And so that's where we sat is that we would distribute those lab people throughout our area so that they were distanced from each other. Everybody's wearing masks, everybody's sanitizing, the facility is cleaned on a much more regular basis. Uh, but the lab people really have, have a harder time, obviously, working from home than anybody else. And that's where we've kept it. We've been pretty conservative um, in that just the lab people are going back to work. We want those uh, employees to feel as safe and protected as possible in doing their job. Uh, they do schedule time in specific lab and with specific equipment, again, to keep contact down as much as possible. And everyone that's not a lab worker has remained at home. And we have found that people have been quite productive, uh, that they, we can still have meetings over Zoom, everyone can still do their work, there's lots of interaction, and that has really not been, uh, been an issue. One thing that we have also spent a lot of time on is hiring. So we've actually hired 21 people since the beginning of the year. Uh, so that's a lot of new employees that have had to come on board. And about 15 of them have come on since we've been working from home. So they've been recruited, 
interviewed, onboarded, and started working without ever going to one of our facilities. And that we were concerned about. And we spent a lot of time thinking about how to modify our onboarding procedures, how to make sure that these employees had good exposure to their coworkers. Uh, each employee has been given kind of a coach uh, to help them. Uh, we've scheduled much more regular group meetings so that people can interact with a group, even if it's like you and I are interacting right now. Uh, so those are some of the things. One, making sure our lab workers were safe, making sure everyone working from home had all the tools they need, and making sure new employees had the appropriate support system to be successful. Yeah, that's uh, it, it. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the uh, the the hiring challenge when you're still in a, you know, work from home, uh, context. Um, it's it's got to be difficult to establish for those new hires the 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 culture. You know, kind of create that co you know that that cohesive team and 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 get the culture. Uh, I guess conveyed in a, in an appropriate way when you're when you're doing things over Zoom and and telephone. Mm -hmm. um, do you anticipate? I mean. I guess I'd just ask, how's that going? And do you anticipate, you know, maybe a higher level of attrition with folks who are, you know, hired during this weird time? Or if, if uh, you know, if you feel like it's, uh, these, these employees have to expect to some, to some degree that it's not going to be, you know, hey, welcome to the office. Let's, uh, let's have a beer at three, right? Right, right. So, so far it's been going quite well. Our HR department has done a couple of surveys um, of the new employees, and we get uh, about 96% of them in the last survey said they thought that the onboarding was going very well, um, and they felt like they were being welcomed to the to the company appropriately. You know, we hope that sooner rather than later, we can be back in a situation where at least smaller groups of people, like maybe functional groups, can get together and have a safe face-to-face -face interaction. That's something we're going to try and work towards. So I think it is, I think so far it's working. I will say that there's been a lot of surveys that have come out from recruiters or big hiring agencies or consulting firms that say they do anticipate turnover is going to increase over the next year to two years because there is more of an ability to work from home. And so people can say, well, I don't necessarily have to move. I don't necessarily have to worry about a longer commute because we're going to be working from home. Uh, so this is something we're very concerned about and we're looking at. Uh, there are some surveys that say that turnover could average as high as 35 to 45%, which mm -hmm. is a very big number. Right. Um, and very hard for organizations to, to keep up with when you're doing that much hiring. So it's something I think all of us are starting to kind of take a big look at and, and make plans for. Yeah. And costly. I mean, uh, you know, that, that rate of turnover would be very costly, especially. In it would be. Where, yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the price of competence is uh, it's, it's not a cheap date, right? To, to nope. Talented folks. Yeah. Well, and especially since I think all of us know, and most especially in a high-tech industry like ours, that it takes some time before a new employee is truly additive. 
you know, they have to train on the specifics of the systems that we're using, the specifics of our technology, the specifics of the field of ophthalmology and notology that we're working in. Um, and so, you know, you know that it takes some time and you're investing a lot of resources in a new employee. So for to think about turnover getting that high, um, you know, I think that on average in the biopharmaceutical uh, world, kind of historically, turnover is somewhere between 15 and 20%, which is still pretty high, um, you know, but manageable. If it gets to that 35 or 45, it's going to be a whole different world really to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, you know, in the time that we have left, we, I think we could probably talk about this for, uh, for, for, for quite a while, but I, I've got a, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about some other things um, be, before we have to, to, to end. Um, you know, in the, um, in the space that you're in, there have been some recent, uh, I guess, you, you alluded to early on in, in, in your leadership at AGTC that, you know, there was a sort of a crisis in, within the, the greater industry that they need to be overcome. And this probably doesn't, uh, you know, it probably doesn't align with with the magnitude of that crisis. But there's been some bad news in the space the last last few months. Um, at the same time, there was a pandemic going on where, you know, the FDA is 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 kind of speeding up its tempo on on uh, illnesses and, and indications that are related to lung disease and, you know, SARS obviously, uh, pulmonary distress. Um, seeing things speed up there, I'm wondering. I, I, kind of a long uh, preamble to the question. I'm wondering how the activities that, that are taking place around the pandemic and the, the things the FDA are doing at this point, um, how those are impacting progress with regulatory agencies for companies like yours in the, in the cell and gene space. So I think that the the agency has been working very, very hard to make sure that they're meeting their obligations across the board. And, you know, Peter Marks is the head of the CBER, the organization that gene therapy and cell therapy products um, go through, has said that that's their goal, is to meet their obligations across the board. But there's no doubt that there are burdens. I mean, the number of new potential tests for COVID-19, treatments for COVID-19, vaccines for COVID-19 is huge, as it should be. We should all be very much focused on this. It's, it's quite important to the world. And so what we have seen is that the FDA is being responsive but it might be the not be the same type of response. For instance, we just had a response from the FDA on one of our pro programs. Normally, it would have been a face-to-face -face meeting. Um, obviously, nobody's flying into D.C. to have a face-to-face -face meeting right now. Um, but then, you know, the backup would be to have a conference call. Uh, that didn't happen. You know, I think it's hard to get everybody together uh, from the agency side, and they do like to be in the same room together so they can kind of have a back and forth before they respond. And so what we got was a very comprehensive written response in place of that face-to-face -face meeting. Mm -hmm. So I think that we are seeing things like that that instead of kind of a normal course of face-to-face -face interaction or casual one-off interaction, you know, we're getting written response, but they still got that response to us in a timely manner. It was very thorough. It was very complete. Uh, and so, again, it shows that they're working very hard to meet their obligations. But I think we can all expect 
that the type of interaction might be a little bit different. Yeah. Does that, uh, like in the case of a written response, does that, does it slow things down a little bit for you? You know, perhaps you've got, you've got follow-up. What, what, how does that kind of play out in the dynamic of the back and forth? So I think the back and forth can be strung out a little bit exactly. because instead of being real time and being able to clarify and answer real time, we've got to respond in writing and get a response back from them in writing. You know, we were lucky enough that the, the response was quite comprehensive. And to the extent that we said, oh, we understand that, we can accommodate that feedback then we don't need to go back to the FDA necessarily on the things that we're like, oh yeah, we can do that, we can do that, we can follow that recommendation. Uh, I think in the case of where people are, are trying to negotiate something different or something kind of trying to compromise between what a company wants to do and what the FDA wants them to do, I think that could extend the time uh, mm -hmm. over which a resolution is gotten to. I think we just have to anticipate that with the huge increase in volume due to the pandemic and those treatments that that will affect timing on some of these kinds of interactions. Yeah. Uh, do you have any, uh, you have any, I guess, do you care to pro prognosticate on, on when things might kind of open up again and, uh, and you might get that face-to-face -face meeting the way it should be? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't have that kind of crystal ball, and, no. and certainly infectious disease is, is not my forte, so I, I would not want to uh, take a guess on that. Yeah. What about funding? Has the, the, the focus on COVID-19 in the, in the investment community had an impact on the allocation of, or availability of funding for cell and gene therapies, to your, to your knowledge? To my knowledge, no. Um, and in, in the greater biopharmaceutical world, the, the information that's out there has said that there is still a lot of funding flow into biopharmaceutical uh, companies across the board. The, the IPO activity, follow-on activity has been very robust. Uh, so we have not seen that curtailed um, by the pandemic. I think there's actually been an increased focus on the biopharmaceutical industry as being an industry that has solutions to problems that really does use technology for the betterment of, of patients. Uh, and so in that regard, it's been a positive somewhat that there's been an increased focus on our industry as an industry that can offer solutions. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing. Of course, now, uh, you know, the, the gauntlet's kind of been thrown down, right? Now, now we've got to run it. I've got to prove it. We have had multiple conversations with folks over the past six months, you know, where, you know, last fall and for months and years prior, um, it was, it was easy to pick on the pharma space and the biofilm. Mm -hmm. and, and now everyone's kind of got some expectations that, uh, that the industry step it up. They're pretty high expectations, and I appreciate all of those that are working in that space, but uh, the pressure must be enormous. Right. So uh, I want to give you an opportunity before we, uh, before we, uh, before we knock, it, knock the, uh, the show out here to give us an update, update on your time, or, I'm sorry, your pipeline um, and, and next big steps. So where, where yeah, are you our next big step is, is firmly in front of us, and that is starting a late-stage trial for our lead 
clinical program. So our lead clinical program is a product to treat XLRP or X-linked retinitis pigmentosa, which is a genetically caused vision loss. So these patients are diagnosed early in boyhood. Uh, and what they know from their diagnosis is their vision is just going to get worse and worse and worse over time until they're completely and utterly blind. So it's a really devastating diagnosis. And our product has shown in the early stage trials that we have a a favorable safety profile and signs of biological activity. We're seeing improvements in patients' vision when they're treated in the central portion of their eye. And so we're really excited to get started with a late stage trial in the first quarter of 2021. And that's our next big step. We're all very much focused on that, making that happen and kicking it off. Yeah. You anticipate, uh, you said first quarter 2021? First quarter 2021. So not too long from now. Yeah. Do you anticipate that you'll still be, uh, I'm, I'm sure, still uh, you'll sort of have a plan in place to still be dealing with the effects of uh, quarantines and, um, and, 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 and other effects? Yeah, absolutely we do. And one of the things we're taking into account, as you always do, you want your clinical trial sites kind of geographically um, around the, the country and the world. And we're putting an even bigger emphasis on that, such if there are hot spots within the country or in Europe or in Canada or in Israel, that we can shift enrollment to other geographies. And so that's one of the many things that we're taking into account, as well as having our mobile vision center uh, re remain available. So we'll adjust and adapt as we move forward. Awesome. Well, Sue, we're, uh, we're out of time here, but I want to express my appreciation for uh, having you on the show. It's, it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks. I've enjoyed it very much, and uh, I wish you the best of luck as we move this show forward. Yeah, I wish you the best of luck too. We'll be paying attention uh, to to your story, and we'll be watching those those trials in Q1. And I hope to have you back on sometime soon to talk about more success at AGTC. Great. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's AGTC's Sue Washer. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva, which offers a trove of great resources for emerging biotechs at com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out and go to bioprocessonline.com to sign up for our newsletter, which is full of valuable content created by and about your biopharma peers. In the meantime, thanks for listening.